This is Undisciplined. I'm Nalini Nadkarni. If you've had a ski accident that's resulted in a broken bone, you've experienced the remarkable capacity of bones to heal. But in some cases, the healing process can go awry. The process of bone repair is incredibly complex, and the mechanisms behind skeletal healing still hold unanswered questions that require insights from many scientific disciplines. To shed light on how to identify bones that don't heal, a team headed by a mechanical engineer at Lehigh University applied virtual imaging and simulation techniques to model the mechanical properties of healing bones in sheep. This research could improve how human bone fractures are treated and more accurately diagnose when healing fractures fail to fuse. Our guest today is Dr. Hannah Daly from Lehigh University. Hannah, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be with you today. Uh, Hannah, your recent article um, as a scientific report in the prestigious journal Nature published this year about the healing of bone fractures using virtual mechanical testing was just fascinating for me to read. But before we get into the details of the paper, I'd first like to introduce you to our listeners. Um, Hannah Daly is an associate professor at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania, and she is in the Department of Mechanical Engineering and Mechanics. And her specialties are biomechanics, medical imaging, and medical devices, as well as orthopedics and traumatology, which is quite a broad range. Hannah, no doubt most of our listeners have broken one bone or another and have lived through the process of healing. But I wonder if you could provide a brief description of the process of healing, that is the different tissues involved, and and maybe start by describing what callus tissue is and, and go on from there. Sure, I would love to. This is the invisible miracle or magic of bone healing. It's the thing that made me fall in love with orthopedics when I first got into this field. So after you've broken a bone, you have sometimes two or sometimes many fragments, little pieces of bone that are sort of uh, disconnected from one another. And then over a period of weeks and months, the body undergoes this incredible process of regenerating something that's called a callus. And it's not like a callus that you get on your hands if you work out a lot and lift weights. It's a tissue that's specifically designed to provide structural support to the bone fragments. If you've ever visited a cathedral and you've seen the flying buttresses on the side of the building, you know that the job of the buttresses is to kind of hold up the walls of the cathedral. And callus is a lot like that for a bone that's trying to heal itself. The job of a callus is to provide that buttress or a bridge between the bone fragments. It starts out as a really soft material, like um, like the cartilage that would be on the ends of your joints. And then it begins to slowly infiltrate with new bone. We call that woven bone because it's not quite the same properties as the original bone yet. And over time, that woven bone gets denser. It lays down mineral, which is the main composition of the bone. And it becomes equivalent, usually, to the bone before it was broken. And that's one of the things that's pretty incredible about the way the bones heal, because instead of making a scar, they heal themselves with the original tissue that was there. Wow. That was a great description. I, I, I'm envisioning a cathedral in my own body right now. Um, can you also help us understand the general approach of virtual mechanical testing, um, which, as you wrote, is a promising technique for image-based assessment of structural bone healing? How, how does that work? How does that fit into understanding this, this complex process of healing? Sure. Virtual mechanical testing is the... Uh 
the love child of orthopedic surgery and mechanical engineering. It's the idea that you could take an image and interpret what you see in an image in a way that allows you to build a model in a computer simulation environment that you could do anything to. You can take that model and you could put forces and loads on it, again, just in this simulation environment that would replicate some of the experiences that that bone might have in the body of the person or the animal that you took the image from. And we can use the model to tell us how the structure of the bone is behaving under load. So we can test things in this virtual simulation environment that we could never test in a living person because you can't reach in there and hold on to the ends of the bone and tell a person how well healed they are, right? So we want a simulation that could do that instead. Fantastic. Great. Um, Let's get to your paper. Um, One of the things I really appreciated about your study was the way that you and your colleagues mustered evidence from multiple sources. You were, this paper had six co-authors at three institutions, both in the U.S. and Switzerland. And, and I was wondering, how did you assemble your team? So the collaboration that I have with the University of Zurich, it's the Musculoskeletal Research Institute there, has been really one of the joys of my professional career. Uh, I like to sometimes say that Switzerland is the mothership of orthopedic trauma. So it is the birthplace of the modern ideas that we have about how bones heal and about how orthopedic surgeons can use implants to put patients back together again after they've gotten injured. So I originally got connected with the researchers in Switzerland over a decade ago and then had the opportunity to come back together to work on this project, which is really uh, taking advantage of some uh, data from animal experiments that they had already completed and using them in a new way, which is really important. We're reusing some data from animal experiments that were previously completed in Switzerland at the University of Zurich. And this is important because it allows us to abide by the kind of international guidance toward the three R's in animal research. This is for the replacement, reduction, and refinement of animal use. So whenever we can do an experiment that takes old data and repurposes it in a new way to enable new scientific discoveries, that's a really good thing for the scientific community. So for this project, we came together to reuse this data that was already in existence and see if we could come up with a technique for virtual mechanical testing that would help us to replicate the results of a mechanical test that had already been done on these bone specimens. I see. And and I noticed that, uh, I mean, right in your title, you said this is ovine bones. So I'm wondering why sheep? What What is it about sheep bones that, is it because you had those previous experiments and work done on it that you use them? Or is there something about sheep bones that is more elucidating for answering these questions? That is such an excellent question. So, you know, your choice of animal model is really about the kind of scientific questions that you're looking to answer. Uh, In the case of studying bone fracture healing, sheep are the ideal model for the way that human bones heal for a couple of reasons. So we look at the same bone, it's the tibia or the shin bone, and anatomically, the tibia of a sheep is very similar in size and shape. It's a little smaller than a human one, but it's, it's pretty comparable. And their bones actually heal by similar processes and they make similar tissues. And they do that at about the same speed that humans do. A little bit faster, but very similar. And then finally, the tibia of a sheep comes from its hind limb. And when a sheep is walking around, obviously it's a quadruped. It walks on four legs. And we humans, we're bipeds, right? We only walk on two legs. But when a sheep is walking on its hind legs, it's very similar to you or I walking around on our tiptoes. So there's a couple of good biomechanical and anatomical reasons why sheep are the perfect model for fracture healing. And it's a really good close step away from studying things in humans. 
I noted that your emphasis was on bones that don't heal. And I was wondering if you could tell us about that. What proportion of bones have these non-unions as, as you wrote? Yeah, sure. So non-union is a pretty devastating life event for a person that it happens to. So in the fractures that happen in the shin bone or the tibia, about 12% of all of those injuries worldwide will go on to this non-union condition where the bones just don't come back together the way they should. So that would be, you know, six out of every 50 people are going to have this happen to them. And when it occurs, non-union is uh, very long and protracted in its time course and the treatments that it requires. Usually there are multiple surgeries. Patients are in pain for a long time. They may have problems with pain management, increased risk of depression and um, opioid use for long periods of time and abuse. So there are a lot of health consequences. And then the... uh, kind of non-direct medical expenses like lost productive work time can be up to 10 times the actual medical costs of all the surgeries. So non-unions are very, very burdensome on both patients and the healthcare system when they occur. And we'd like to try to prevent them if we could. And that's the inspiration for doing this work. So you also emphasized that it was really the early stages of healing as being important. And and why was that? Why, why is it so much like, let's get it early? Totally, totally. So um, every surgeon wishes he, he or she had a crystal ball to look into the future for a patient who might be at a high risk of having something bad happen. You know, these are not always totally unpredictable when they occur. There are known risk factors for non-union. So the more severe or serious your injury, the more likely you are to have a problem with your bone healing. So if you have a, a, a high energy accident, let's say that you're in a motorcycle accident and your leg gets kind of mangled up and broken, you're at a higher risk for having problems. And everybody could kind of uh, understand why that might be the case. But there are things about a person's biology that can also put them at risk. So one of the big factors is cigarette smoking. Cigarette smoking is very well known. Actually, any kind of nicotine exposure, whether it's cigarettes or vapes, is very well known to be associated with increased risk of problems with bone healing. So a surgeon can look at a patient and have a bad feeling like, oh, this this person is going to have potentially a difficult time healing their bone. But the surgeon can't predict for sure who that's going to happen to. So what they have to do is wait and watch. And usually the watching is done with x-rays. So typically about every six weeks, a patient goes back in for a follow-up and they get x-rays. And then together, the surgeon and the patient will kind of have a discussion about whether it looks like new bone is forming and whether the patient is experiencing, you know, an improvement in their ability to move around and a reduction in their pain. So it's kind of subjective, meaning that it requires some opinion and some some judgment, some educated judgment. And that takes a long time to be sure that a patient is not going to heal their bone. But what we would like to do is enable a surgeon to make a good decision using an imaging-based test so they can, you know, order up a scan and say that their patient should go get some pictures taken, and then we can run our analysis. And then the surgeon can have kind of like a score that will tell them how well that bone is doing. And if the score is good, then the surgeon is happy to wait and they'll know that that patient is most likely to heal. And if the score is poor, then that can help the surgeon and their patient make an informed decision about whether a surgery would be the right thing to do to try to get things going. Because we do not want patients waiting many, many months or sometimes years, as is the current case, uh, waiting and trying to decide if surgery is the right course of action to get that bone back together again. I see. Well, that I can I can see why you were attracted to this question because those are really critical things to be able to solve with this preparation and the background material and the reasons for the the virtual uh, mechanical testing. Can you describe just a couple of the highlights of your findings? 
What did you, you and you and your team walk away with? Sure. Okay. So there's sort of two big things that I want to try to convey. And the first of which is that we, we determined through doing this research that the virtual mechanical test is a really good replacement or a surrogate measure, we call it in research, for a physical test. Because you can't always do a physical test. Like if it's a human patient, you can't put their tibia in a mechanical testing machine and know how well it's doing. So if we have a virtual test that can do a good job of matching the results of a physical test, then we know when we go to try to apply this in real patients that we're getting good data out of it. So that's kind of one big takeaway, and that is very promising for the use of this technique in the care of real human patients who experience these injuries. The other big takeaway is something fascinating that we learned about the internal structure of the callus. This is that buttress of new tissue that's forming to hold the bone pieces back together again. So what we learned through doing this research is that a callus is not all the same throughout. Yes, it's, you know, it's early stage bone. It's trying to uh, do all the same job of holding these bone pieces back together again. But parts of the callus are very soft and squishy and parts of the callus are very mature and they're acting like bone. So we learned that you can use the amount of mineral that's present locally in the bone to help determine whether it's behaving like a soft, squishy material or whether it's behaving more like hard bone. And that by differentiating or discriminating between the soft parts and the hard parts, we can do a better job of replicating the results of those physical tests that we're trying to match. And it's, in fact, really important that we recognize the soft parts are distinct from the hard parts so that we don't uh, overpredict the rigidity or the mechanical integrity of this bone during the early healing process. Um, let's shift a bit, and I w- I'd like to talk a little bit about you and your own career. I was wondering what drew you to mechanical engineering and wondering if you envisioned the work you're now doing when you first started out and, and whether you might have been influenced by a mentor or a colleague or just kind of what is your relationship to the field of mechanical engineering? I am so glad you brought this up because I think, you know, for anybody who's a young person listening to this or a parent of a young person, I think that there is so much pressure that high school age kids are under right now to have their whole life figured out and have a strategic plan of how they're going to get there. And I can promise you that was not my experience at all. You (laughs) You asked me, how did I choose mechanical engineering? To be honest, it was process of elimination. I did not know what any kind of engineer did. And I went down the list and I crossed off the one that did not sound fun to me. And I was left with mechanical engineering because I loved Legos and I loved working on mechanical things with my dad. And that's what I thought mechanical engineers did. I had no conceptualization of the role that mechanical engineers can have in medicine or in medical devices or in many of the fields that uh, that Mechies, that's what we call ourselves, Mechies are involved Mechies. in. Yes, I've we're never Mechies. Heard that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, um, you know, if you're a young person right now, and you're trying to figure out your life plan, you can safely kind of draw breath and recognize that there are going to be twists and turns that lead you into new opportunities that you could never have foreseen, but that could be the making of your career. I got into orthopedics 13 years ago, and it was completely by accident. I had an opportunity to move overseas uh, 
because my husband had a job opportunity in Ireland and I interviewed for jobs and I found a position that was involving the design of a new orthopedic implant. I didn't know anything about bones at that time, but I was really fascinated and eager to try something new. And I was incredibly lucky that they gave me a shot at this job. And when I learned what was involved in orthopedic surgery and that the surgeons are there to kind of put people back together again after the worst day of their lives and that engineers can have a role in making that better. I really did fall in love with it. And so the whole trajectory of my career changed from that moment and it put me on the path to where I am today, which I couldn't have foreseen even 13 years ago. So the planning part of it can be really, really stressful, but it's not something that you need to be so stressed about because you will not be able to predict where life is going to take you. So I'm a big proponent of taking things as they come. I love that. I think that's a fantastic message. Again, especially for the younger people in our audience who are going through that process, no doubt, of thinking about what do they want to do when they grow up and how do might they want to contribute to the world. You know, the scientific enterprise and, and NSF, the National Science Foundation in particular, is becoming increasingly aware of the need to diversify and to expand the pool of all kinds of people to contribute to the scientific enterprise. And myself being a woman in science and you a woman in engineering, I was really thrilled to see that your career award is gonna support the mission of the Perry Initiative, which I understand is a nonprofit that's dedicated to inspire women to enter the fields of orthopedic surgery and engineering. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that initiative and what your piece in that partnership will be. Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought up the Perry Initiative because they're an organization that's very dear to my heart. I also serve on the Engineering Advisory Board for the Perry Initiative. And what Perry Initiative does is bring hands-on experiences to young women from kind of like the middle school through college, even medical school age, to expose them to the uh, tools and the techniques that orthopedic surgeons use to do what they do, and to give them an interpretation of what that is from the perspective of engineering the tools and using the tools. Both mechanical engineering and orthopedic surgery are disciplines that are very much dominated by white men. And I think a lot of institutions are eager to change that. Certainly, we are very much focused on increasing diversity in mechanical engineering, and not just at Lehigh, but everywhere. There's really, really good research that shows that when your team, like a team of engineers or designers, is more diverse in who they are and where they come from and the identities that they have, that your team will be more creative and more productive. So as engineering educators, we're trying to break down the barriers to people getting into engineering and staying in engineering. So these experiences, like what the Perry Initiative provides, are a really critical component of that. Because if I put a drill into a girl's hand who's never held one before, and I give her the opportunity to be successful in a pretend orthopedic surgery, that teaches her that she's able to do that. And that's a really profound thing that uh, it's a gift that you can give to someone who may not otherwise have that opportunity. And, you know, I'm a mom of two girls. I have a 10-year-old and a 13-year-old. And, you know, as I watch them grow and develop and develop thoughts about themselves and what they're good at and not good at, I see the value in these hands-on experiences. So the relationship between my career research with the NSF Career Award 
And the Perry Initiative is that we got together to try to develop some new hands-on tools that the Perry Initiative can use in their workshops. And I had senior engineering design students at Lehigh who worked for me to come up with a design and build all the tools and test them and show that they would work in the field. And then we turned that back over to the Perry Initiative for their use this year. So it was really exciting to partner with an organization that's doing something so wonderful and bring together students across the spectrum of their educational development to be able to contribute to that. I wish that it had existed when I was a youngster because I I didn't see role models like you. And it's just so great to know that not only individuals are doing this, people like you, but that there are actually organizations that have been set up to disseminate disseminate this much more broadly to an array or spectrum, as you said, uh, of of young women and men to understand that everybody can be contributing to the scientific and engineering enterprise. You know, I also learned from your website that you do not only cutting edge research and broadening participation in engineering and science, but you're also the co-founder and chief scientific officer of OrthoZell, DAC, an, an Irish-based orthopedic device company that grew out of technology. And, you know, not many academics venture into the business of entrepreneurship, but, but you've done that too. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that venture. Absolutely. Uh, so I think... I sometimes jokingly refer to myself as the world's most unlikely entrepreneur because I'm not a real risk taker, but I had an opportunity to work on an idea for an orthopedic implant while I was a postdoctoral researcher in Ireland. And uh, I got invested enough in the science behind the idea that I really, really believed that it would work. And so when it came time to spin out a company and be involved in the uh, steps that are required to commercialize a technology, I wanted to have that learning experience because I really believed that if we could get over the major hurdles that are involved in securing regulatory clearance to be able to use a device and developing uh, evidence that it actually works in humans, if we could do that, that we would find that it was actually a good thing for the patients. And so I was motivated to kind of go on that long learning journey, which has been really amazing for me as a mechanical engineering educator, because now I can kind of talk to my students. I, I talk the talk and walk the walk. Um, like you guys, this is what it means to really design something and really manufacture it and really distribute it. And so that kind of thinking has informed the way that I teach and the way that I mentor students who are doing our senior design experiences at Lehigh. Uh, It's really changed me as an academic in a way that I feel very privileged to have had a chance to do. Fantastic. You know, this conversation has helped me see that you view your work and career as not only being about, you know, advancing yourself in your academic ladder climbing, but, and not just about solving the nuts and bolts of the mechanics of bone healing, but that you're really truly dedicated to activities that contribute to the human good. And to me, that's extremely inspiring. And I was wondering if you had any other words about kind of that bigger picture of what you've chosen to do with your career and your life for our listeners. You know, I, It's been an interesting journey for me over the course of my experiences as an engineer, starting from my time as a student and then becoming an early career professional and then becoming an academic and a professor and mentoring students, really seen a change in mindset. This current generation of students is profoundly motivated by the idea of social impact. They want to know that they're choosing a career that will allow them to have measurable impact on human life. 
And there's lots of different ways that that can happen. You know, some people want to found companies. Some people want to um, alleviate human suffering. Some people want to tackle the big challenges that are facing our society, our, our, our planet as a whole. But all the students really do share this kind of thread in common, which I don't remember so much from my generation. And I think that gives me a lot of hope for the future. That if we have an, an entire generation of young people who are choosing to embark on this career as engineers, not because they'd like to get a good job that pays well and is going to give them retirement savings and they can build a career there, but because they really, really want to have that kind of long-term impact through their work, I think that that means that we collectively, as a profession of engineering, that we're going to be able to solve some of these big problems that we're facing. So it gives me a lot of hope. That's very beautiful. And that's really congruent with my experience with students. I'm in biology, but I think I see the same trend of this dedication, this this search really in a way for how to make our work in science and engineering meaningful and um, contributory, I think, to society in general. So that that's very wonderful. And I think um it's it's been it's it is a very positive shift societally as well, because when I was a student, there was sort of an explicit messaging that you will not be able to have any impact on anything until you're very senior in your career. So you should expect to be doing a mindless job where you're not really contributing anything. And I think that uh, students today are capable of doing a lot more if we put the tools in their hands. So this, this shift where young people are kind of demanding their seat at the table and ready to take on these challenges is very exciting. So I'm uh, really, really happy to be involved on the educational side, helping to equip students to be ready for that future. Hannah, thank you so much for taking the time to share this fascinating piece of research and the way you are changing the world uh, with our listeners. I really enjoyed learning from, from your perspectives. And I just want to say that we at Utah Public Radio wish you the best for your work in the future. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Nalini Nadkarni. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. Big ideas.